pronounce your name correctly for me. Gail Tustin. And as you know, because you've listened to the podcast, my general next question is, how did you become creative in the first place? So was it parents? Were some youthful experiences? So like, so what led you down this path? I think for me, it was an escape because my father left home when I was nine months old. And so I grew up with a single parent and my sister was four years older. And so I started cutting and pasting. This is kind of my first memories is there was this kind of yellowy manila paper that there used to be scrapbooks. And I used to cut up magazines and wallpaper books. And I and I had a lot of them, but my mother got rid of them. I don't know what ever happened to them when we moved. So that was my first. It was an escape because my mom was depressed. So... But wallpaper books, did your mother... Well, cut out, you know, I'd cut little figures and make the... Well, but not um, everybody has wallpaper books laying around. That's why I'm sorry. I don't, someone gave them to her because we weren't wallpapering. I know that. We were in a small apartment. And the little fold-out dolls, you know, you fold the paper and cut them out, and then they'd be holding hands. I used to love to do that. Now, where was this? Where did you grow up? Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For seven years, and then Sharpsville, Pennsylvania, north of Pittsburgh, Western PA. Okay, and so now you you work. You're you're known primarily as a ceramicist. I'm I'm, I'm saying this tentatively because I want to make sure that basically yes, that's right. You, you know, define I don't it. Say Potter. Yeah, that's the that's the the sort of the the question. You know what he would like to be called, basically. So ceramicist, but you also do two-dimensional paintings and other sorts of things like since you work in multiple mediums what do you like to be known for I just call myself an artist and that just changes it depends what I'm working on so right now finishing up a commission but I'm also doing small ceramic objects and I'm working on a plan for installation pieces with my large tarps that I'm painting and collaging on and my dress forms. So I've got probably four of them figured out. And so I think I'm going to have to sort of rent a space with good lights. And that's the direction my, my art's going. I think it has to do with things that I collect Well, And that's something that comes up quite frequently, which is the discussion of like artists having to store stuff. I know we're sitting here in your studio and I know that your loft is mostly storage and the storage rack over here is also storage. Do you have like a storage unit or? I don't. I've talked about it. I've talked even with artist friends about let's do this because or else have a big giant sale. But then basically you end up giving your work away and I'm not ready to do that. No, none of us are ever ready to do that. But it's hard. I mean, the issue of like, basically, how much do you produce? How big, large scale is it? Because if you can't have it on exhibition or have it in a gallery or have it sold, it ends up being in storage. That's right. So do you take that into consideration? Because like your work is, is specifically, I'm thinking the ceramic work, is reasonably fragile. So like you have to put a little extra added layer of 
protection when you have to keep it in storage and or even when you have to ship it or anything like this. Yeah, shipping is really a, a pain for ceramic work. But I think for storage, I would be storing my paintings. I've tried to devise different ways to store things. For example, I've been working on um, loose canvas, unstretched canvas, which I really like. I'll sew the edges and and put hanging corners on them. And so I devised this PVC pipe that I can just drape them over, and then I have a sailing pulley system so I can lower them down. And You do know nobody can see this. This is an audio podcast. I, yes, I do know that. Okay, but... just making clear. <laughs> but you described it pretty well. This is pretty good. What about shipping? Something I always wonder about, like specifically, so so shipping is a bitch for you because, like, I mean, for me, it it's is. easy. So I, I don't do it that much, you know. I've I've in different times in my life, I've had numerous galleries. Let's say probably the most I've been with at one time is a half a dozen, and they've all been basically I could drive to them. So I had kind of decided a while back I was not going to try to go on the other side of the Mississippi just because it's it's just too far even when I would apply for shows and exhibitions I would just make sure they were a little more local or no farther than Pennsylvania kind of thing okay so you mentioned galleries so you've been in many galleries it sounds like over the course of your career did you choose them? Did they choose you? How did you make these relationships? I think initially it started out that I sought out galleries, would put together a proposal and make an appointment. I would not do a cold call and go in. and. But first I would investigate the gallery because your work just doesn't fit in any gallery. You know, I'd go somewhere, let's like say New Bern. I had two different galleries at different times in New Bern. And one, my work fit in great. And I feel like if your work fits in, it's going to sell. If your work doesn't fit in somewhere, then the wrong person's going to go in there for you. Okay. Now, I've had this, in my mind, I rattle around these different philosophies of this. When you're looking at a gallery, are you looking at, like, okay, when I look at a gallery and I'm thinking, oh, my work would fit beautifully here, I'm noticing that my work sort of fills a niche that they don't currently have in their roster. But I know there's also the other way of doing it, which is basically finding artists who work like you. And so you're sort of in a group of similar mediums or similar subject matters or whatever kind of thing. So like, do you, which way do you look when you're looking at a gallery? Uh, more that my work fits in, not is my work similar to other work in there because I still do ceramic wall sculpture and I have not really found anybody doing quite the same kind of thing that large ceramic tiles, the largest I can get in my kiln is 23 by 23 inches. So a lot of times I'll cut them like stained glass and hang them and so it's like a painting, but it's in relief in clay. And I would look and look at the other paintings and maybe the pottery, other ceramic work in there, and see how my work looked with it. Because I'm not a realist. I'm not a landscape painter. So I just have found galleries that lean more towards that. It's They're not for me. I mean, I wish that 
more people would come to me. You know, fortunately, the representation I have now, the gallerist came to me and, you know, wanted to show my ceramic vessel sculpture. And it was a success, you know, quite a few pieces sold and she's a good promoter and it fit with the other work. Right. Okay. So going through your sort of history of experiences with galleries and gallerists, what kind of things sort of were red flags that said this was not going to work? Or what were some really great characteristics of a gallery or the people running the gallery that made you say, this is really going well? I think that the more unusual the art was, I felt like I could fit in. Just back to realism and landscape painting and portraiture, my work just doesn't fit in there. And I've gone to galleries and been turned away, too, because they didn't want to hang ceramic on the wall. They wanted to put it on a pedestal. And then they were like, oh, my gosh, this is so heavy. Well, clay's heavy. It's not like I'm doing thin porcelain tiles. All you need is a 50-pound hanger, and it's fine. But, but that would scare people away. There was, I'm kind of getting off track here, but there was an exhibition at the Cameron Art Museum with Viola Fry, and I got the postcard in the mail, and it was like, oh my gosh, Viola Fry, and she is deceased now, an incredible artist, but she did these giant figurative works that got pieced together, so I called up the museum, I said, please, please, you know, I would like to help you put these together, and it just was an amazing experience. It made my work seem like you know, a teacup or something compared to each element that got bolted together for her pieces. Oh, yeah. These are monumental sculptures made of, like, pieces put together, I'm assuming probably because of size of kilns, basically. Yes. Yes, and just the weight, weight of them, and traveling, too, so. Yeah, those would be quite outrageous. Yeah, so versus where if it was metal or something, you could make it in a larger piece and wouldn't have to worry so much about transport and breakage. Okay. Now, have you had any bad experiences with galleries? Yes, I have had bad experiences with galleries. And mainly discounting my work unbeknownst to me. And then you get a check in the mail and it's like, wait a minute. And then, oh, we're so sorry. We just thought we could give this person a discount. And it wasn't like the the person ever you know, bought anything of mine before, I can see if it's a repeat person coming in there and there wasn't in the contract. So I did have a falling out with a one gallery and it was just like, I j- just pulled my work out. It's like, this isn't even worth it, you know, if they don't understand my side. So, and damage, not too bad a damage, things that I could repair, but shoving things in corners and behind doors and you go in and you have your list of where the work is and you know it takes them a while to find it and it's like okay I'm done with this gallery too because there's no respect sometimes I get the same thing I mean they damage my frames and stuff like that I mean it's very rarely the yeah it's very for me it's very rarely the work itself that's damaged but the frames boy they a lot of galleries do not treat frames very well they think they're just like carrying containers basically Right. Well, I had one gallery and I had some ceramic wall pieces and there were four individual ones. Each one was about the size of about four regular clay bricks, but it was carved out and they broke 
uh, like four out of six. I think there were six of them. And, and then they threw the pieces away. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, what? You know, I, a lot of stuff I can repair. I've got like my little systems. I use um, PC7s, one of my favorite two-part epoxy glues, and you can sand it and paint it. And nobody knows, but that, that was a little disrespectful. I'm sorry. It wasn't like shattered or something. Oh, it was in so many pieces, but... Did they at least pay you your... They did pay me. Okay, so that's but, something. Yeah, they did pay me. All right, that's fair. So. Now, you also were part of No Boundaries. That's right. So tell me a little bit about your involvement in No Boundaries, which is an artist colony, which might be want to rename itself Artist Residency because colony is a bit dated. But And then on top of that, also residencies in general. Have you done any of your own artwork sort of going off throughout the world? Yes. So first, No Boundaries. Pam told Dick Roberts and I started that in 1998 was our first colony. And what happened was, as you know, Pam Toll went to Macedonia in 1994, and she came back really a changed person and just full of this new energy. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, I want to do this. So the next year, they said, bring another artist. Well, hello, I didn't even have to apply. And I wasn't even painting then. That kind of is what got me painting. I was working in clay and doing my wall sculpture and relief. And so, boy, I was pretty nervous. I'm going to go work with these painters from all over the world. And it just... It was in Macedonia, and at the time, they were known as the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, right when Yugoslavia broke up. And while I was there, the it's like September 1995, they were recognized as their own country, and they were so excited, they shot guns off the balcony of this monastery, you know, celebrating and drinking lots of rakia. As one does at a monastery. Yes, yeah, yeah, there, of course, there you go. There was this passion that I have not ever seen in the United States for art. I'm not afraid to show your passion to one another, you know, like men dancing together and, you know, that and walking arm in arm. It was like, wow, you just don't do this in the United States or. I just noticed it more with the men. They were just more flamboyant and not afraid of their femininity that you just see more in this country. So then they found out I did clay, and so I was invited back the next year in 96, and I went to a colony on Lake Presba. And that year, Dick went with Pam back to the monastery at St. Yokama Sogasi in the Ogoski Mountains on the Albanian-Bulgarian border. So Macedonian's a little landlocked country. And so after Dick went, you know, he's all juiced up about all this too. And we're like, we need to do this. You know, let's let's do it. So we formed a nonprofit, and the first colony was in 1998, and it it really changed our lives. You know, when I was on the plane coming back from Macedonia the first time in '95, I really felt like, okay, I lived, I can die, and I'm satisfied with all my life experiences. It was that enriching. And have you done any other residencies since then? 
I have Sayanoha in northern Spain and also a few Paint a Future, which there's a number of us around here that have done that. And one was in South Africa, in Plettenberg, South Africa. Another was in Brazil, Florianopolis, Brazil, and um, Arpoinkumno, which Sergei Andreski started, a couple residencies there and a reunion there. And that's all I can think of right now. Well, my what well, the big question for me, I've no, I don't think I've ever done like a formal residency. I've done things similar to residencies, but so the question is sort of like, are they really as beneficial as some people think they are? Like some people swear by residencies, and some people don't get as much out of them. So, like, what is your experiences with doing residencies? They changed my life. Really, they changed my life. I hadn't traveled that much abroad. I had been abroad before, but you just really get to know people from different cultures. And even if you can't speak the same language, you're able to share so much through your art. It's just really so opening. It just kind of opens your soul to understanding more about the world and I I would go back and do a residency again but at this stage in my life I would be really picky because some of them are a little more rustic and primitive and I don't mind that but it's not so easy being in my 60s now so but I I highly recommend it. I have not been to residencies in the United States. I just started investigating that because I know a lot of the state parks have residencies, and I have a little more freedom now, so I could be able to do that. Well, actually, let's go back a little bit of a step on this. You went to school. You never mentioned sort of where you, any education you got. What what kind of ed- education was it? An arts education or some other education? What did you do? Well, I think I have the record of all my friends of attending the most universities and colleges. So I started out in... I did four. I did 10. Okay, yeah, you beat me. So, <laughs> so I started out in business school because it was my parents. You have to get a job. You're not going to art school. I actually wanted to go into fashion design. So you have to get at least a two-year degree so you can basically be a secretary so you know that you have money on the table. And that was a big thing with my mother since she was a single parent for so long. And that was really hard for her. And so I started out at Robert Morris University in Coriopolis, Pennsylvania, right outside Pittsburgh. I've heard of none of those things or places, but go on. Well, it's a business business school. And that's why so I So I got a two-year degree from there. And then I immediately, I wanted to go to fashion design school. So I applied back up my first semester at Robert Morris. I got accepted to Arizona University, and they had a really good fashion design and merchandising program. I went home with the paperwork and said, look, I got into this. This is what I want to do. And my parents said, well, good luck. Goodbye. You know, and then I was just too insecure to get a job and try to put myself through school. So I finished out my associate degree at Robert Morris, 
And then I started taking night classes. So I was interested in clay, and my first pottery class was at Allegheny Community College outside of Pittsburgh. And then I took a sculpture class at the University of Pittsburgh. And then I lived in Tennessee for a while, and I took printmaking at Union University. And then I started wanting to fill in the blanks, and I took some health and nutrition classes just to get credits at Jackson State. And then I went to Penn State. Penn State really changed me, Penn State University Park. And that was a big foundation for my clay. David Dontigny, Jim Stevenson, Joe Havel, some just really great professors there. And then I moved and I'm not sure how many we're up to, but when I moved, <laughs> when I moved to Wilmington, then I'm I'm floundering again, and I decided I wanted to go into jewelry, but I had to go travel all the way to ECU. So it's like, okay, I can't do that. I'm just going to get my bachelor's degree in fine art and just see where it goes from there. So I took photography at Cape Fear Community College, and then I did two semesters, one through the University of Tennessee at Arrowmount, and I got credit there. That was clay classes with Pete Pinnell and Linda Arbuckle. Excellent, excellent time. And then Alfred University in Alfred, New York, which is the renowned ceramic school in the sciences and in the art. And then I got my degree from UNCW, and I actually was the first student to graduate with honors there only because a friend of mine in the English department knew I was in school, and she said, you are going to do the honors project, aren't you? And I didn't even know what it was. And as long as your grade point average, I think, was 3.2, you could do an honors project. But no one had ever done it in the art department. So I paved the road for that and graduated with honors. So you started off as business school, and then you ended up in the arts. Did taking those business classes and all that, do you feel that that's in any way sort of benefited you with your art practice? Because as a teacher, one of my big pet peeves about modern academic art education is is that we teach too much about technique, practice, philosophy, and not enough about basically how to make money doing it, how to make a living from it, whatever that means. So whether it's grants, residencies, sales, whatever, we don't teach that. So did that education help you or did it it impact you in any way? I don't think it helped me be like a salesperson or like how to make a living, but there were basics like accounting and things like that. Taxes, business math, yeah. Yes, which now I hate. I hate doing my taxes course. Who likes doing taxes? But I pay somebody (laughs) else to do my taxes. Yeah, well, I I get it all together and then it's here. You know. My taxes are super easy, so I'm not too concerned about it. But it was the the education at the time was executive secretarial. And so I had shorthand and business math, and I started working for Hertz Rent-A-Car, and then I got a really good job at Price Waterhouse, one of the big eight accounting firms downtown Pittsburgh, and they wanted me to move up and be the vice president's secretary. And that's when I decided, I can't do this. I'll be in this the rest of my life. 
and I was taking art classes at night, so I kind of closed everything up and moved to Martha's Vineyard and was looking for an apprenticeship with a potter, but that didn't happen. <laughs> okay, but the, so this sort of comes to like one of my big questions, of course, is like, have you had over your, the course of your life had to do what I define as like side hustles, like other jobs in order to keep make ends meet? Or have you been primarily either like doing workshops or teaching or selling or, you know, so like how have you been able to sort of fit work together a, a, an income? No, I had to do side jobs. When I was at Penn State, I met a woman in the art studios and she was in graduate school for arts education. And we were both doing kind of tile work. So we had talked about, let's start a tile business. So I moved to the Poconos in 1982, the summer of 1982, and we started a tile business. It was called Rhine Tustin Studios. And so it took us a while to get on our feet. So, yeah, I was waiting tables at Floyd's Restaurant, downtown Stroudsburg on Main Street, you know, that kind of thing. I've done my share of waiting tables. No. Okay. Now, along that line, though, now, so have you ever applied for any grants or anything like this? I have. I got an emerging artist grant from the Arts Council in Wilmington in 1991 and bought this slab roller. So, and I didn't even get what I asked for. It didn't pay for this lab roller, but it was just so much work for $800 or something. I'm surprised it was 800. I would have said less than 500. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the, my rubs about sort of the whole grant system is, is that oftentimes it's more work than the amount of money that they're giving you between the the paperwork to apply, but then also the paperwork to, you know, sort of rectify it at the end, you know, give the justifications and all this. Well, we certainly found that out with no boundaries too, that, you know, we were trying to make our project what the grant wanted. And then we just decided this isn't, this isn't going to work. So we went knocking on doors for sponsorships instead. Sometimes it's easier that way. Mm -hmm. Along that, one thing that, like, so I know you personally because we've been in, sort of run in the same circles throughout Wilmington for many years. I don't think I've ever sort of sat down and sort of, like, investigated your work. So do you write artist statements and have, like, great things to, in text form to describe what you produce? Or do you leave that sort of vague and open to interpretation? I do. I have artist statements and I have bios. I really hate writing them, but I do when it's called for. And something I do is I I have so many sketchbooks and notebooks around. It's sort of like whichever one is closest I pick up. So they're not in order by date, that's for sure. And so when I'm working a lot of times, I'll write down what's in my head. I might get some, I think, oh, this is a profound statement about what I'm thinking about while I'm working. And, and I'll, I do that with titles too. When I work on pieces, my, my process is long. I don't sit down and make a piece of work in one day, whether it's painting, collage, or clay work. So I'll keep a note card or a notebook, and I might have at least a dozen titles in the process. And then the final title is what it ends up being because it it just changes. I jump around. 
I find titles to be really difficult because I find that they either are too vague and too abstract or they're incredibly like esoteric and pompous. And I, I, for me, like I find it very difficult to find the right title because I either go too simple or I go way too intellectual. Right. And finding that right balance to, because I do portfolio reviews online and a lot of times they have titles with their works. And like, I find that a lot of times the titles can be very distracting. I agree. From sort of engaging with it. So mm-hmm. trying to be able to balance that sort of the right title to get people engaged without turning them off or turning them away from it is mm-hmm. a very difficult line to balance. Well, when I was working more abstract, my work, there's, you know, ex- expressionistic, more so things appear in it. And I used to try to make them go away. I don't do that so much now. But there was a point when I was working abstract, I would just pick up a freaking dictionary or a book. I didn't know, and close my eyes and open a page and point to a word. Oh, that works. There's my title, you know, which is a little ridiculous, but... That's how meaningful titles were to me too. It, it, it's interesting because there was a time when mean, when titles were not very important. Like I remember this where people just didn't care about titles. Right, right. And a lot of times people were like untitled number 93, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like people just didn't care about them. They weren't. Right. But they've. I feel like they've become more important again. Uh, I, I get a lot of people asking about titles and, mm-hmm. and, and, try, and really trying hard to come up with good titles, evocative titles. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why I guess I started writing down, you know, everything that was coming into my mind while I was working on it, and that's helped me. And then it's fun to go back, and I'll usually, you know, just tape those in my sketchbooks while that I'm, it's about the piece I'm working on, and it's fun to go back and look at that. Okay, along that line, when you're making work, are you intentionally creating a body of work or are you just making a single piece at a time and then it happens to become a body of work over time? Pretty much both. I. It can't be both. Choose well, one or the other. Okay, so... I'm kidding. You but I fine. jump around. So I'm working now on a body of work with boxes and I'm making ceramic elements and almost like... Cornell, you know, that is very inspiring to me, but these have little feet, and now they're kind of turning into houses. So I am working on a series of those, but I might work on one and then come in my studio the next day, and, you know, something catches my eye, and the next thing I know, I'm painting on a tarp or cutting up fabric to glue on something or so. How many pieces of whatever medium you're working in do you have going at any given moment? How, like total? Sure. Oh my gosh. 30. Oh wow. Okay. You know, like I've got like six or seven going at any given time, but right. I find that a lot of that has to do with the, basically the sheer space you have in your studio. Mm-hmm. Like you have a very spacious studio with lots of surfaces, so you can have mm-hmm. lots of different things going on. Like mm-hmm. I have a smaller studio, so I can, I'm limited by the space in my studio mm-hmm. as far as how many I can have going. So you actually have 30 pieces of going at well, any given time? Well, I guess I say that because sometimes I, things are just sometimes never finished. They're just never finished unless there's a show and you've got to push it out the door. And so 
I guess that's why I say that because some things I I get stuck and I don't want to go too far. We've all done that. You go too far and you ruin a piece. I always and overwork. so I I'm pretty good about putting it away and like seriously sometimes I've put stuff away for a year or more and then it'll hit me this is what this piece needs so I feel fortunate that I can do that I don't know I blame a lot on me being a Gemini (laughs) I have multiple personalities and I just like too many things I'm so interested in so many things I have to like limit myself like a friend of mine wanted to do encaustic and I've played around with encaustic before, and I thought, oh, I, I have some pieces. I just want to, you know, touch on the encaustic. So half my studio is turned over to encaustic. And then it's like, no, 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 I can't do this, you know. I'll just do a dash here and there, but it's one more thing. I'm in too many things. Oh, I love materials. I'm, I'm personally right now playing with encaustic. I'm playing with paraffin wax. I'm playing with pastels. I'm playing with all kinds of things that probably will never see the light of day. But part of the fun of it is just trying some things and seeing what they do. Right. Well, I try not to let go of playing in my work. You know, I do do commissions too, and there's only a limited amount of play you can do with commissions. And I have a clause in my contract that I can make changes if I see that it will, you know, aesthetically raise the work to another level. So I'm not stuck in my drawing because what I have found that if you try to um, reproduce a drawing, it just is too stiff when I try to do it on a larger scale. So I try to put the smaller piece away and just from memory bring it to someplace else. The most shocking part of that statement was that you have a contract. So like you have a pre-existing contract for commissions that you just sort of pull out. Well, I didn't make it up. I used somebody's as a model. I forget there was, this is years ago. You might've even been here. Somebody came to town and she was about how to promote your art. I think the arts council did it or something. And so we had some, you know, blanket kind of contracts that I, you know, just changed how it would suit me. So I have. No if you want a copy, I'll yeah. let you. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a copy. Oh no, I hate commissions. No, I, I I've done like three commissions in my entire life, and I hated every single one of them. They were painful to produce, and I'm embarrassed by them. One of them's down at PPD, actually. So like, yeah, I'm just. Ugh, I I hate doing doing them with such a passion. It's in the same way. I was a photographer, like a straight photographer for many, many years, and people would always ask me to do weddings. And I did a wedding one time in my career, and it was the worst photographic experience I've ever had in my entire life. The clients were perfectly happy, but I hated it so much. Like the whole act of doing it was just horrible. I didn't sleep for days ahead of time. Like I was so concerned and so afraid of everything going wrong. And and because they were paying me. It was a commission, basically. And I just, I, I didn't get into the creative industries to have that kind of stress. Right. Of course. So I refuse. I've, I did that one wedding one time and I've never done one since. And I will not do anything like that again. Right. Well, you know, I did a lot of work for hospice over years for commissions for them. And that ended up being okay. I was going to say that's a little different, you know. 
I mean, doing it for a for a charitable event organization, that's a little different mm-hmm. than like somebody asking for a pet portrait or something like. No, <laughs> I won't do that. Well, to me, that when I hear commission, I think pet portraits. Right. Well, there are plenty of people that are much better at that than me. There are. In your career, have you done workshops and any other kinds of uh, sort of teaching method type of things? Yes, I have. I've worked with children quite a bit. And the last workshop I did was a narrative vessel building workshop at the Cameron Art Museum. What I learned from that, it was successful. I was really happy with how people's work came out. But it was a over three weekends and that was a little hard and also lugging clay over there so next time I decide to do that I'll do it in my studio you know I'll just move everything around because it just it's heavy lifting 50 pound boxes of clay around and then I was using their kilns to fire so I kind of had to hang around a little more than what I wanted to and babysit the kilns so Sure, it's not your home kiln. No. Like you don't know its little nuances. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a couple. I've got a couple more things that I sort of want to touch on because I take notes while I'm listening to you. At one point, you talked about children. Uh, one question I often have about, probably because like I'm planning on having children with my wife in the That's near great. future. That's great. And so I, I'm interested in like how does having children affect your either your art practice or your general life and how you sort of structure everything around when children enter your life? Well, I have one daughter, and I just really loved being a parent. It changed my life, and I think everybody should be a parent. Maybe not really, but you certainly learn a lot more when you have kids. So, of course, family is a priority. So... That always came first, but I made the time to get in my studio, pretty much would take my daughter to school early, and I'd be just right in the studio and made sure I had about four hours of time. And then I had workshops with kids, and that was really fun. And it's inspiring just because, you know, you think you're playful, and then you get around kids, and they're doing art, and it just opens up a whole new door. I've bartered doing things with kids at the Alice Higgins Montessori School, which is not in there anymore, but the mural's still up. It's 22 feet high by 15 feet wide, and we did a clay quilt in there. And then my daughter went to St. Mary's, and I bartered doing murals with kids. They did tiles of what they were thankful for, and then I designed these stained-glass-looking windows Wait, I'm sorry. Let me get this clear. You bartered for your children's education? Yes, I did. Excellent. Yes. I thoroughly admire that. Yeah. Yeah. It worked. It's great. I would love to barter for things like this. Yeah, it was a win-win. I want to find somebody that will let me barter for my mortgage. Well, maybe. Some developer (laughs) or whatever that will let me trade artwork for for my mortgage. Yeah, I try to barter. You know, I'm shy about it sometimes. You know, I wish my dentist would barter and things like that. That'd be great. But it's usually like, oh, we we have too much hanging around here already. And it's usually like bad looking stuff. And it's like, it's not worth the aggravation. I had had a doctor when I was a kid that had a, a, a scale sarcophagus of Tutankhamun in the waiting room weirdest doctor I've ever had in my life great fun worst taste in art 
he's no longer a doctor though, but that's a long story. Anyways, but the, you know, so like a lot of people can talk about how like having children like took away from there or as you're saying, sort of added to their artistic practice and stuff. So was it anything that sort of you feel like had an impact either positive or negative on your career? I think it was positive because I I did become more playful. And my daughter inspired me. My daughter's not an artist. She's a, a physician's assistant because she told me one time a long time ago when I opened up the kiln when it was in my garage studio and, and it was a disaster and I'm sitting on the floor crying and she comes down. <laughs> she said that's when she decided I'm not being an artist. You know, I've got to make more money and be able to play more. But I don't, my daughter has even worked for me when I've had some projects and needed help. And I mean, we're we're close, you know, we're really good buddies, especially now since she's in her 30s. We're really good friends. But she she had her daughter here because her husband was in Bahrain with the Coast Guard. So she lived with me and I got to be here to catch the baby. So when my granddaughter was here, we had a pack and play in the studio and Jerry would come out here that's my daughter and help me and and we'd put all these postcards around my granddaughter's crib and I I think I did more with my granddaughter who's only six now than with my daughter and she is an incredible little artist you know so much more than my daughter and I don't know if that had had anything to do with it or not but it's Skips inspiring. generation sometimes. Yeah. yeah, children often are either exactly like their parents or the opposite of their parents. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, it's pretty common. Now, you mentioned also like the that you you know you would drop your kid off work at school and then you would put in a good four hours in the studio. I find that a lot of artists are one of two things. Now, I could be totally wrong on this, but this is my my perception is that artists are either they the kind of artists that basically wait to be inspired before they go into the studio or the kind of people that they go into the studio every day like it's a job from nine to five or whatever their time frame is and they have to be there regardless of whether they're inspired or not which do you fall into one of those categories i find that if i set so many hours a day to be in my studio, I'm, I'm much better because my studio is behind my house. It's attached by the roof. There is a breezeway, but still you're close to home. So when I go to my studio, I it's like, okay, I'll go in the house for lunch. But some, because I used to walk in there, it's like, oh, there's laundry. Oh, there's dishes. And it would like totally distract me. And the next thing I know, I'd my family would be coming home and I'd have to make dinner. So if I... Like, like even now, I'm, I'm not a morning person. I've never been like, except when I had to take my daughter to school early and get me in the studio. I like to be in the studio at 12, but it's, I'm in the studio by two o'clock and I'm a late night worker. So I'll take a late lunch and then I'll work till nine or 10 at night. And sometimes my best time to work is, you know, six to 10. Okay. Sorry, my dog was distracting me. (laughs) Dogs have a habit of doing that. My Betty. Mm -hmm. Okay. uh, Last sort of like question that was rattling in my brain before I even came here was from our last meeting, our last conversation over dinner, you were talking about how you already have some of your paperwork and stuff at the university library. And so I'm, I'm starting to think 
because I'm having some family issues with loss and, and people passing and things like this about what a previous guest had talked to me about. Amy Pontsick was talking about estate planning for artists and how a lot of us make the mistake of not in advance of us passing, thinking about how our stuff will be scholarly used you put it in there's research in university libraries this kind of stuff so like is this something that you have consciously thought about to try and do or did it just fall in your lap what happened was when i was doing the honors project i did a lot of research on something that i fell in love with which was terra sigillata and what that means is earth seal so you separate the finest particles out of clay and you paint that on, I add oxides to it and burnish it. But I I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tiles. I have a whole library of tiles and research notes and my glaze technology research. So when I did that honors project, it was shortly after that that they asked if they could archive my working papers. So they have some stuff over there, but I'm not rushing to send a lot of stuff over there because I it's reference for me. You know, I go back, and so I'm I'm very happy that my stuff isn't just going to go on the side of the road, all my research and my tests. Well, but that's what but that then leads to the question of, like, you have a very large studio here with a lot of stuff, and I'm sure you have things in galleries right now that are not sold and all this kind of stuff. So, like, trying to think about planning for the future of, like, of your estate, basically. So, like, is this something you've ever thought about? Like where my work's going to go? Pretty much, yeah. I I have a handwritten list and with my will. I do have a will just because I've had numerous people close to me die, and then it was like, I better have a will. And so I, I've talked to this, to my daughter about this, and you know she knows who my good friends are, and, and they'll get first choice, and that's all. I don't have it willed to any other museum or anything like that. I'm fortunate that the Cameron Art Museum does have a couple of my pieces and, you know, maybe they'd want something else, but I'm not, I'm not counting on that. You know, I, I'm just wondering, you know, it's, it's just on my mind because of my own family issues and just the general state of the world with COVID and all this, like just thinking a lot about the future of how people will, you know, artists will be perceived basically once they pass. Yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I feel very fortunate that the university, the local university here was interested enough and saw my research. I worked with uh, Anthony Jansen, Tony Jansen on that. He was my mentor for my senior project. And his father was H.W. Jansen that wrote the history of art. I was going to say, yeah, that's the history book, the Jansen book. And so we were very fortunate to have Tony teach at the university here for a while. Brilliant, brilliant man. And he... Took me under his wing, and so he's was my advisor for the project, the senior project. So it was basically Tony that got me in on that, and he is he's still alive. He lives in the Charleston area now. Hmm. All right, last little sort of tidbit thing would be basically from your life experiences, from your artistic career experiences. Any advice for people who are coming up now and how to try to do it well? It's a different world now. I don't, I don't know because I don't even have a website right now. My website's down. So they need to advise me more than I need to advise them. You know, I guess 
Yeah, you're not very good with social media either, are you? No, I no, I really don't like Facebook. I'm still on Facebook, and it's it's good for some things. And I'm on Instagram, and I started out being a a real fan, and I still I like Instagram. I get on there probably every day, and because I follow a lot of people and and galleries and museums, but I I'm just. I'm shy, I guess, about posting. I take pictures all the time in my work, and then it's like, oh, I'm not going to put this up there. It's tough. You know? I mean, it, it it's a bit of like, social media to me is a bit like clicks in high school kind of thing. Like, they're the popular kids, they're the not popular kids, and like, it's really hard to become a popular kid. But mm-hmm. quite honestly, do you really want to be a popular kid? Well, what I found is I'll take a picture I'll post it. And then I get all worried, like, how many people are looking at this? Who's coming? And then I got to get back on there to see. It just takes up too much time. I don't want to do that. Well, it's not just time. It's it's emotional energy, like, that you're it investing is. in this thing that you would, quite honestly, we'd rather invest in something else, like making a new piece of art. Right, right. I'd rather work. I worked with an ecclesiastical artist in Philadelphia, PA before I started the tile business with Kathy Ryan Lockwood in the Poconos. And he taught me a lot. I probably learned more from Marco than any like school or work situation. And he was pretty reclusive. And I don't know, I find myself kind of being that way. But he worked in stained glass and ceramic tile and painting. And he it was pretty much all ecclesiastical work. And um, as you know, all about that. Yes, I'm sure you'd get along with my um, father beautifully. I don't don't know. I guess there's just another way, hopefully another way besides social media. I had a website, and the guy who did my website put my titles and dimensions on top of the piece. And it was, really? we need to go back and change this. And then he wanted to charge me an astrical amount of money to go back and change it. And after I lost my domain name, I just let it go and figured if people want to find me, there's enough if you Google me out there. And I do have quite a bit on Instagram, but. Okay. So back to the, it's unfortunate. You should get a little bit more of an internet presence. It's, it's, it is beneficial in many ways. It is. It's annoying in many other ways, but it is beneficial in some ways. But so some advice, though, so from your experiences, it could be anything. It could be, I mean, you already said how much you loved residencies. Um, you had some bad experiences with uh, with galleries, but I mean, any other sort of things along that line? Something like, actually, something that fascinates me is insurance. Do you, by do you keep like insurance on your studio? I have homeowner's <laughs> insurance. I don't really have extra insurance for a lot. I mean, I have a pretty good high homeowner's insurance. and Oh, you live in Hurricane Alley. You darn yes, well we better. do. We have to have wind and hail and flood, you know. But advice, it's unfortunate. Like right now, we're still in COVID. But one thing is travel. Travel. Get out of your state. Get out of your country and put a backpack on if you can. And, and you know, search residencies. I just think there's so many great ones out there international and a lot of them are are hard to find but if you do your homework and there's a lot more now on instagram you know hashtags are fabulous to if you're interested in something you know check out that hashtag and there's a lot of residencies i've seen i remember 
God, what was it? 20 years ago, I found a book of residencies just in France. And the, re- the book was like 200 pages thick of just artist residencies just in France. And they've, they've blown up. I mean, they're all over the world now. Everybody loves to have an artist residency in their mm-hmm. community or their country or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So travel more. Travel more. And, and it, it is a different world with websites and galleries. I'm not even sure where that's going to go with the gallery situation now. I, I wish I was making more than 50% when I do turn my work over to a gallery. You know, that's hard. Is 50%. that a pet peeve of yours? Pardon? Is that a peeve of yours that you, that you have to give over 50%? I think it should be 60-40 anyways because I know galleries have overhead and if they advertise and all this and that, but it's just like when you put when you think about what you really want to charge, it's usually the full price and you're going to get half for what it is. Especially, I hate to say this, but in our area, there's not a big following of and promoting the arts and supporting the artists, supporting the local artists, is guess what I want to say. Oh yeah. No, I've said on previous podcasts that like the like any sort of tourist or sort of small town or quaint place, no matter where it is in the world, like the it's gonna be tough to be there. But it's a great place to be an artist. So like, you know, inexpensive living, slow lifestyle, easy, you know, lots of space and time to sort of reflect and think and do all that stuff because you're not in a major metropolitan area, Mm -hmm. which is marvelous. However, there are also not a lot of collectors or opportunities in those regions to be able to sustain your career. So you're sort of forced to leave your area in order to be able to maintain your career. I'd say that's probably right. That I know the light around here is so beautiful. When I when I travel, I enjoy coming back to Wilmington. I really do. It's a good place to call home, and I have good network of friends. And there are some really fabulous artists here, and a lot of young ones coming up. Is your primary income at this point from your art sales? No, not my primary income. No, I'd say half my income is from my art sales. The rest is investments. Well, that's pretty good. Yeah. You made some smart investments. Yeah. 50% of yeah. your income is coming yeah. from that. Well, because I mean, it, to a certain extent, like I look around at your studio, you have this really beautiful place. I mean, it's quite an envious studio that most people Thank don't, you. you know, You're it's right. quite luxurious. And so I often wonder, like, how can you afford to do this kind of thing? Well, my husband, common-law husband, was a small commercial builder. So he built it for yeah. cheap. So well, we did a he lot ourselves. He built it for cost. We I did mean. a lot ourselves, you know, like, seriously. Spackle and the soffit outside, and we did a lot. So that, sure, not everybody could build a studio like this. And fortunately, oh. the, our piece of property here was big enough to do, I put stakes in the yard, those little flags, that this is what I wanted, and I thought for sure he was gonna, you know, say, okay, this is all. He I'm said, surprised okay. you could get it permitted. Well, we did. Okay, yeah, I mean, because it's it's a, I mean, your it's studio about, is about almost the size of your house. Fourteen hundred square feet, right? And my kiln room in the back too, which is not heated. My house in Wilmington was only seven hundred square feet. Well, I could live in here. I might do that someday, you know, <laughs> when my house gets too big to take care of. Okay, fair enough. You know. 
Yeah, I mean, because yeah. to me, the the biggest problem in the art world is is that specifically making a living, being able to afford whatever artistic lifestyle mm-hmm. we all desire, we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Nobody talks about it. It drives me nuts because, you know, like the old the old joke of like you get ten bankers together, they talk about art. You get ten artists together, they talk about money. Like we want to talk about money, but we don't we don't feel comfortable asking about it. You know, like mm-hmm. you know, like how do you afford this? How did you get this? You know, whatever resource material. How do you afford to keep your studios? Like I'm thinking, you know, when people rent them out in the place, like people don't like talking about in the arts. They don't like talking about how people afford to do things. Well, it it's hard. I know if I didn't have some extra income, I know what I would be doing. I'm also a mold maker. I'd be making tile molds of lighthouses probably and and seagulls. Yeah. Yeah, like beach things and selling them. But I don't want to do that. So fortunately, I don't have to. Well, and that's a, that's the balancing act that we all sort of choose in our lives. Like mm-hmm. how much of the sort of the things to make a living we do versus the things we do to sort of keep ourselves Mm -hmm. sane uh, you know through our artistic practice and like how far are we willing to go one way or the other I mean I know a lot of people that will not do any sort of commercial product kind of stuff and they live very modest lifestyles because they just won't do that work and of course I know many people who do a lot of that commercial stuff and they have lots of money but they may not be satisfying their artistic sort of itch that they need well, when I had the tile business in the Poconos, we did commercial work. That's what we did. And it ended up, not that we intentionally went in this direction, but it ended up being signs, ceramic tile signs. And we were doing these great big, huge tiles and making molds for banks in eastern Pennsylvania. And then that that was really torturous. I mean, we were making money, but we were also breaking our backs, too. And I, I didn't want to do that. When I moved here, it was like, I'm done with that. So it was successful. Well, but that goes back to the definition of success. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that I'm you know, still trying to figure out. Um, my advice is you've got to work hard. Don't give up. If you know, young artists, it's just like work, work, work. Keep going. Yeah, we all make stuff we don't want anybody else to see. So either put it in the closet or burn it in the backyard and just keep going. Or sell it and just don't put your name to it. Or cut it up for collage. You know, I think we've all, my artist friends have found our work in Ivy Cottage or, you know, places like that. It's hysterical. That's a local secondhand store. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it.